Well, hi there again, exploitation diehards and lovers of all things weird and wonderful. Yes, it's the Nasty Pasty Podcast, back again for another double dose of delectable, demented delicacies of dubious descriptions. I'm your designated Gabba, Andy Roberts, Bachelor of the Arts, video game enthusiast, and controversial film viewer extraordinaire. Just in case you've suffered massive anterograde amnesia, and are a glutton for punishment, or are a poor sap who's accidentally clicked on the wrong link, let me explain at length what this podcast is actually about. I live in the UK, and we're a bit of a funny bunch. Sometimes we're the pinnacle of moral decent behaviour, and other times we're bloody awful and shite examples of human actions. One such instance of shittiness was in the 1980s, where the newspapers and old biddies with nothing better to do than whinge started focusing on VHS tapes, which were relatively new in the country, so much so that there was no age certification for any films, theoretically meaning that kids could access them. This was too much for the corky old bats in Westminster, who immediately went crying to the Director of Public Prosecutions, who, under pressure from the mounting erroneous stories of people committing crimes whilst in a stupor from watching horror tapes, commissioned a list of films that he felt could be successfully prosecuted in UK courts as obscene articles. The police went out baying for the blood of innocent dealers and distributors who were simply selling their product, only to be on the receiving end of humiliating raids, the court process and eventual jail sentences or even fines. It was not only abhorrent, but a disgusting waste of both public and police time. Which is why this podcast has come to fruition. While I'm not covering the video nasties exactly, I am covering that period of time and choosing titles that were around at the same time that somehow miraculously escaped any attention by the authorities, despite being very similar to the actual bona fide nasties themselves. I mean, if you're going to go all crazy despotic on the populace and ban films, surely you'd just ban them all. We've covered almost everything on this show, but this week we're starting a new genre previously as yet unexplored on the show. It's post-apocalyptic action time, so we're taking a look at two Mad Max-style films with all of the studs, leathers and punchy, stabby action set against the fallout of war and destruction. Today's artefacts are 1982's Bronx Warriors, sometimes known as 1990 The Bronx Warriors, and 1983's 2019 After the Fall of New York. Let's take an imaginative leap into the ersatz futures as we delve into the first mad action-packed gem, Bronx Warriors.
A young woman on the run called Anne flees across a New York bridge after escaping from school, soon revealed to be the daughter of the CEO of the Manhattan Corporation, a huge arms dealer with a monopoly over New York. Anne flees into the Bronx, which is now officially abandoned by the authorities and law enforcement as a restricted area. Instead, the whole district is run by various vicious gangs, one of which, known as the Zombies, attacks the runaway as she stumbles onto them. But almost immediately, another gang known as the Riders turns up on the scene, with a fight ensuing that results in the Zombies being beaten up, closing the deal completely when one of the Riders, Ice, cuts down the last fleeing grunts with a bladed motorcycle. The leader of the Riders, named Trash, extends a hand to Anne after she makes it clear that she does not wish to return to Manhattan. At a meeting point near the Queensboro Bridge, the Riders discover one of their own killed by being impaled on a wooden stake, with another gang, the Tigers, arriving shortly after. Trash confronts one of these, Leech, who admits that they're responsible. Heading to one of the cars, Trash meets with the leader of the gang known as the Ogre, asking why he killed him. Ogre reveals that not only was the man trespassing in their territory, but he was carrying a police tracking device. Back at Manhattan Corporation, it's revealed that the device and the informant were placed purposely by them to locate Anne. Ice surmises that it was probably the Ogre who planted it, suggesting revenge, while Samuel Fisher, a Manhattan Corporation executive, sends an assassin known as Hammer to directly get Anne back. During a rideout, the riders encounter a van of cops, baiting them into giving chase and defacing their vehicle. After they return home, a mysterious man wearing sunglasses infiltrates their hideout and brutally murders two of the gang members who are making out on a staircase by shooting them with a concealed shotgun. Hearing the commotion, Trash leads some of the riders to pursue the stranger who hitches his escape through a getaway truck driver. The riders catch the truck driver, but the stranger has already escaped, forcing them to interrogate him, revealed to be a man known as Hot Dog, a known ally of the Ogre. Back at their hideout, the group bury their fallen and scatter their ashes into the East River, whilst the Manhattan Corporation receives a call from the stranger, revealed to be the assassin Hammer. After finding a signet ring belonging to the Tigers at the scene of their friends' deaths, Ice tries to instigate a war against their rival gang, while Trash is more suspicious of the evidence. Whilst Anne is clearing out her head, Hammer meets with Hot Dog and explains his plan to turn Ice against the group. Trash meets with Anne at the beach, who reveals that she is the inheritor of the Manhattan Corporation and she feels responsible for all of the recent deaths. On their way back, the pair are attacked by the zombies who beat Trash up and kidnap Anne. At the hideout, Trash quells Ice's rebellion idea and suggests that the corporation are meddling on purpose to turn the gangs against each other to find Anne. In response, he wants to meet with the ogre, taking two allies with him and putting Blade in charge of watching over Ice, who he's beginning to mistrust. On their way across the Bronx, they encounter the Iron Men gang who attack them before their leader, a woman, lets Trash go after he explains himself. Ice avails himself of meeting up with Hot Dog and Hammer, closely followed by Blade, whilst Trash's party encounter the Scavengers, who kill one of them before they beat them up. Blade notices Ice agree to betray his entire gang, and flees just as they notice him. As Ice heads off in pursuit, Blade gets ahead of him but is attacked by the Scavengers when he attempts to reach Trash with the news. Finally reaching Tiger territory, Trash infiltrates the Ogre's hideout, only for their cover to be blown when Hammer purposefully and loudly kills one of Ogre's men with Trash's weapon, causing them to encircle him. 
While initially not believing him, Ogre eventually listens to Trash's story and acknowledges the problem, suggesting that they need to band together to save Anne and eliminate Hammer. At the zombies' hideout, Ice implores the leader, Golan, to release Anne to him with little success, whilst Ogre, his companion Witch, and Trash decide to head to the zombies immediately, going through the scavengers' territory again. On their way through, Trash discovers Blade's body strung up, who reveals Ice's betrayal despite his immense pain. Realising that he's near death, Trash mercy kills him, just as Witch and Ogre are attacked by the scavengers, whom they easily kill using claws, a whip and a cane sword. As Ice begins to close a deal with Golan for Anne's return, Hot Dog informs Hammer of the imminent success, despite being unpaid for his services. Trash, Ogre and Witch arrive at the zombies' hideout just as the deal is about to close, with Ogre confronting Golan about Anne's presence. A fight ensues between the two, resulting in Golan's death, just as Ice makes a quick getaway and is confronted by Hot Dog, whom he first tries to shoot before stabbing him in the abdomen with a bladed shoe. Anne and Trash confront Ice, who tries to justify his actions, before attacking Trash and trying to kill him. They struggle, but Trash is able to throw Ice onto a metal spike, killing him. As the gangs relax, basking in their victory, Hammer takes drastic measures and sends in uniformed foot soldiers on horseback to destroy all the gangs at once. As all of the gang realise that it's Anne's 18th birthday, they gift her with a large cake, just as the foot soldiers attack and attempt to incinerate everyone and everything. In the ensuing chaos, both Witch and Ogre are killed, and Anne is shot trying to protect Trash from gunfire. She dies in his arms, prompting Trash to murder Hammer by firing a harpoon into his chest. Attaching Hammer's corpse to his motorcycle, Trash drives away from the carnage to destinations unknown. Where you going, hot dog? <laughs> you motherfucker. I love you like a brother. I'd unscrew that leg of yours and shove it down your throat. Calm down. Let's hear it, hot dog. What are you in such a hurry for? I have an appointment with the President of the United States. Very funny. <laughs> He's trying to cover up for the guy who shot at us. He don't trust no one, Ice. Mind I take a little look around in there? Help yourself. Take a look around, you guys. Right. Never met your mother, did you? She just kind of popped you into the sewer and split, letting you blossom into the asshole you are today. You just keep talking fag face and I'll tear your fucking lid off. Yeah. Bronx Warriors is one of those Italian films that feels entirely familiar, yet completely unpredictable in its execution and direction at the same time. Basing a lot of its premise, style and vibe on the more successful 1979 film The Warriors and 1981's Escape from New York, Enzo G. Castellari's biker beat-em-up is nonetheless creative, charming and ticks all the right boxes for your exploitation movie night. In typical Italian fashion, it's over-the-top machismo, camp costume choices and reliably hilarious dubbing, it's now unguaranteed to make your day. The film began life as an idea by producer Fabrizio De Angelis, who was in New York for a business trip. 
One evening, as he was returning to his hotel via the subway, he missed his stop due to misunderstanding the system, and he found himself in the Bronx, which was quite a dangerous location back in the 80s. Notably, the area was a prime spot for gangs and bootleggers during the Prohibition years, and subsequently the residents became poorer in the wake of the relaxed laws after Prohibition was axed. Between the 60s and the 80s, the Bronx became even more economically deprived after the Robert Moses Cross Bronx Expressway was built, instantly destroying a large swathe of residential buildings. Instead, high-rises were erected in the poorer areas, but these struggled to gain traction as financial companies were unwilling to offer services to the rapidly declining area, and even public services like police and firefighters suffered cuts, leaving the Bronx forsaken in a way. By the 70s, there was a huge crime wave of arson as well, destroying countless buildings in the area, which was a combination of increased criminal activity and fraudulent action by landlords who supposedly would destroy their own property to get the insurance money, since maintaining buildings in the Bronx was much more expensive than the former. De Angelis arrived in the midst of one of the more economically and socially deprived periods for the Bronx, and he was both entranced and appalled by the conditions that he saw. Apart from witnessing criminal activity perpetrated on the streets and a whole array of derelicts, addicts and vagrants, De Angelis was then approached by a gang brandishing switchblades, so he made a quick exit and left the whole district on foot. After making it back to his hotel safely, he wanted to use the experience for a movie, and thus Bronx Warriors was formed. Bringing director Enzo G. Castellari on board, more elements from contemporary films were incorporated – for example, in DeAngelis' original idea, the Bronx was overrun by very similar-looking biker gangs, while Castellari wanted the diversity of something from Walter Hill's The Warriors, so he devised weird and wonderful gangs to populate his vision of a futuristic Bronx. Whilst not as exhaustive as Hill's film, Bronx Warriors nonetheless has quite a novel cast of gangs to enjoy, one of the first of which are the Zombies who wear white ninja tunics, in combination with crash helmets, roller skates and knee pads, brandishing metal hockey sticks as their weapon of choice. Their leader Golan is a little bit different, wearing a red tunic and a more Asian-inspired hairstyle, but he's a leader, so there's got to be some distinction, of course. Our main characters, the Riders, are visually the most generic of the bunch, actually, wearing the expected 80s-era leather jackets and armbands and headbands, embossed with buckles and metal studs. Their motorcycles also bear silly plastic skull decorations, which seem to be able to project physics-defying beams of light that cast perfect skull shapes. I mean, at least it elicits a grin on your face. The Ogres gang, the Tigers, strangely eschew any tiger stripe patterns like their namesake suggests, but instead they dress in formal suits of various bold colours. The theme with them seems to be excessive finery, as they also wear formal hats, feathers, bling, and even feather boas in the case of which. With Ogre being African-American, it makes the gang resemble stereotyped pimps, especially as they choose to travel in a variety of classic automobiles, such as hot rods. There were also the Iron Men, who look like garish versions of Stanley Kubrick's Droogs from Clockwork Orange. They wear metallic tunics, top hats, chrome-like makeup, and they brandish performing batons, or walking canes, as their weapon of choice. They also incorporate dance into their fighting style, rather luckily as the Iron Men were performed by professional Italian TV dancers, with the exception of their leader, who was played by Carla Brait, who simply acts provocatively to great effect. 
Lastly, there's the scavengers, who look less like a gang and more like mutated ghouls, wrapped in torn dirty rags with white faces caked in makeup and armed with primitive clubs and planks of wood. These seem to be just as primitive as their appearance belies, due to their habit of stringing up victims in ritualistic ways and barely saying anything that's cogent. As you can figure, there's a great deal of creativity in the film, despite it not being particularly original at the time, and it's still mega impressive due to the very short time period that the film was devised in. Bronx Warriors was essentially the first part of a three-part film deal by De Angelis and Castellari, which included the sequel Bronx Warriors 2, or Escape from the Bronx as it's sometimes known, and the non-sequel Warriors of the Wasteland, all scripted and prepared within six months. Bronx Warriors began filming in 1981, with three weeks spent filming on location in New York City. Whilst the crew were able to gain access to much of the right-looking areas of the Bronx, including many of the requisite dilapidated buildings and rubble-filled back alleys, some of the footage was also shot in Brooklyn. Of course, not all of the film could be shot on location due to Italian laws, so interiors were filmed on Italian sound stages in Rome. In fact, all of Fred Williamson's scenes ended up being shot in Rome, whilst the opening sequence was shot inside during a rainy day, as Castellari didn't wish to waste any potential day of filming. The movie was also a low-budget feature, of course, so certain concessions like this are obvious from watching the film. One such oddity is the fact that normal traffic is flowing in the background of certain sequences of the riders travelling on their motorcycles, despite the fact that the whole area is supposed to be a no-go zone, declared by the authorities. This was because the crew couldn't get the authority to close any streets during the shoot. Another bizarre moment involves the meeting between the riders and the tigers, where a seemingly uninvolved drummer plays a constant beat during the entire meeting, with a full drum kit set up and a smirk to boot. It's quite a funny addition to the scene, but even stranger is the fact that it just turns out the drummer was there on the day of the shoot, and Castellari just chose to include him in it, with no explanation or notice. Another incidental thing that ended up in the film is that of the actor playing Ice, who legitimately loses control of his bike momentarily and is thrown off just as he chases after Blade. While it sort of works in the final film, it's also fairly obvious that it's a genuine slip-up, and it definitely instigates a giggle or two. Some behind-the-scenes tales also elicit a laugh or two, such as Fred Williamson requesting an apple box to stand on during some of the shots between his and George Eastman's fight, just to give them an equal height. Main guy Mark Gregory was also the butt of some jokes for his very noticeable stiff walking style. The story of Bronx Warriors is not exactly rocket science, but it does stretch it pretty thin due to the introduction of lots of nonsensical fight scenes, silly dialogue and non-sequiturs. It's far from boring though, it just feels a little jumbled up and confused sometimes. Trash and Anne are our main protagonists, and while Mark Gregory and Stefania Girolami both have a very youthful appearance, actually giving us some young heroes for a change, their performances are actually a little on the flat side too. It still manages to be entertaining despite this, as each of the characters has their own little quirks that elicit both laughter and eye rolls. Firstly, Trash both looks and acts like a stereotypical angsty teenager, which he actually was at the time anyway, being a mere 17 years old when he was cast. Gregory seemingly has only one look throughout the whole movie, as though he were born with a congenital look of disdain and his hairless, muscular figure, combined with an effeminate gait and walk, really renders him as one of the campus leaders of a deadly biker gang that I've ever seen. 
The campness seems to be perpetuated by the fact that his pectorals tend to be on show for most of the film's runtime, and the tears in his eyes are much more plentiful when he's confronted with Blade's dying body, rather than Anne's in the climax. He nonetheless has heroic features. He certainly puts up a fight or two, he takes pity on Anne and takes her in as one of his own gang, and he's not dumb enough to simply take the bait laid around him by Hammer. Anne, by comparison, is rather flimsily thrown into the film at the beginning, and as is usual in these sorts of films, is quite inactive when it comes down to actually doing much. She's the heiress to a major multinational company dealing in arms deals, and she refuses to inherit such a bloodthirsty legacy, choosing to run to a dangerous place and hide away from her problems. It seems to go in her favour since she finds a lover and a protector in trash, but she spends the majority of the film as pretty much the damsel, which is a bit disappointing really. I was surprised, however, when she actually sacrifices herself for Trash, taking a bullet for him and dying as a result. It's quite tragic, really, and it's a little Shakespearean in its execution on the screen, with her reminding Trash of his wise words on death as she passes away. Other characters also stand out quite a bit, such as Hammer, who's clearly a typical angry cop character who wants to erase his connection with the Bronx by destroying all of its denizens and the people themselves. As antagonists go, he's a suitable enough arsehole to carry off the role, complete with a maniacal laughter in the film's ending, where he literally brings flamethrowing soldiers to burn everyone to death. Ice is the Weasley gang member who lacks confidence in trash, similar to Ajax from The Warriors, who challenges his leadership and eventually betrays the gang by accepting a bribe from Hannah to cause havoc. Like all slimeballs, however, he gets his own when Trash finally confronts and kills him, but he also has the distinction of owning that motorbike with the bladed trims, which is utilised so beautifully in the film's opening scenes. The ogre, played by Fred Williamson, is also a very memorable presence in the film due to being the biggest epitome of an African-American pimp that there ever was. Dressed in garishly coloured shirts, cravats, and wielding an exotic sword that's concealed in his walking cane. To be honest though, he also kicks major ass in this film, getting rid of his attackers with ease and in one spectacular moment, severing the head of one of the scavengers. His second in command, the kick-ass witch, is also a great presence in the film as she equally handles a tough fight with ease, utilising a whip and metal claws. While the characters are a little retro-feeling for even the 80s, it's just charming to see weird and wonderful characters that actually pack a punch for once. There's also Blade, who, while relatively unremarkable in terms of standing out, is the one who figures out Ice's dastardly scheme and attempts to inform Trash of the dealings. He's also the star of that very bizarre sequence that goes nowhere, in which he jumps on top of the cop van to spray paint the word shit onto their windscreen. His death, while certainly not that affecting for the audience, is taken particularly badly by Trash, who's on the verge of blubbering as he caresses his male companion's face. A little homoerotic if you ask me, a muscular biker in leather chained up in the middle of dilapidated buildings being caressed in the face by a svelte biker equally dressed in leather with emphasis on his muscular torso. Or maybe I'm just a pervert. But still, the Italians do love going so macho that it becomes gay, and the film is also easy to enjoy on that level. Other more visceral elements that this gem has to offer is some truly wacky and daft dialogue that tries so hard to be offensive and crude. Perhaps it was tough to talk like this in the 80s, but it feels very much like playground language by today's standards. 
Trash and his band of cohorts regularly bandy around insults like find what you were looking for, pisshead, and keep talking, fag face, and I'll tear your fucking lid off. In one particularly face-palming moment, Ice comments negatively on Trash's feelings towards Anne by saying, since he's hooked up with that Manhattan pussy, all the blood has rushed to his cock. I mean, yeah, is that meant to be insulting? Apart from the mildly insulting swearing, there's also quite a varied and exciting pastiche of violent bits and bobs. And while it's not the goriest, it's bloody enough to be endearing. We get a throat slashed by the bladed motorcycle in the beginning, a man is found impaled by a wooden spike, two people are shot dead with a shotgun, a man is impaled with wooden stakes, one is stabbed in the back with a knife, someone's impaled with a metal spike, someone's stabbed in the gut with metal claws, and a man is decapitated with a cane sword, a man's stabbed in the gut with a bladed shoe, and a man is pushed onto a metal spike, and finally several people are burned alive in the film's ending. We get the not-so-emotional gunning down of Anne before getting an amazing kill by Trash, who fires a giant harpoon gun into the guffawing hammer, who's subsequently dragged away by Trash's motorbike as the film ends. With so much campness, a refreshingly large breadth of creativity and punchy moments of violence, macho-ness and silliness, you'd have to be raving mad not to seek with this one out. My friend David actually introduced this one to me around five years ago, and I've never really looked back. I love this one, and I'd say that you will too. Trash was played by Italian actor Mark Gregory, who was a mere 17 years old when he starred in this film. His fiancée at the time submitted his photograph when the production was sending out casting calls, and despite having no experience, only working in a shoe shop prior, he won the role against all other choices. His passion for motorcycles and his skills at wrestling gave him a bit of an edge over the other candidates – so much so that he ended up appearing in further films. He reprised his role for the 1983 sequel, Escape from the Bronx, 1983's Adam and Eve, and he was also in the Thunder trilogy as the titular character. The Ogre was played by blaxploitation legend Fred Williamson, who'd been in Black Caesar, Crazy Joe, and the original Inglorious Bastards. Post-Bronx Warriors, he appeared in several other films, like Warriors of the Wasteland and Warriors of the Year 2072, before heading into more mainstream material like From Dust Till Dawn, Children of the Corn 5, and 2004's Starsky and Hutch. Anne was played by Stefania Girolami Goodwin, who'd also appeared in the Polizioteschi film The Big Racket, Warriors of the Wasteland, and Sinbad of the Seven Seas. She was also the assistant director on the film, working in that capacity on other projects like the TV series Dawson's Creek and even the much-maligned Super Mario Brothers in 1993. Christopher Connolly, whom we literally just saw last week in Manhattan Baby, appears in this as Hot Dog, whilst veteran actor Vic Morrow played the role of Hammer. Morrow had been in films and TV shows since the 50s, stuff like 1970s TV movie Roots, Humanoids from the Deep, and also The Last Shark. But his final appearance would be in the cursed 1983 Twilight Zone, the movie, where he tragically lost his life when a helicopter on set crashed on top of him, killing two actors who were nearby him as well. Samuel Fisher was played by Onio Girolami, who'd been a familiar face in a few other Italian films, like The Last Shark, Video Nasty Tenebrae, Warriors of the Wasteland, the sequel Escape from the Bronx, Killer Crocodile, and its 1990 sequel. The familiar and hench-hunk George Eastman, whom we've seen before in Hands of Steel and Stage Fright, stars in this film as Golan, 
whilst Joshua Sinclair, who played Ice, had previously been in sporadic Italian productions here and there, like The Big Racket, Hitchhike, Inglorious Bastards, and The Last Shark. Hawk was played by Rocco Lero, who'd been in a bunch of Poliziotaschi films, like Syndicate Sadists, The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, as well as Inglorious Bastards and Atlantis Interceptors. Another familiar face is that of Massimo Vanni, who played Blade. We've seen him in quite a few films on Nasty Pasty before, including Rats, Night of Terror, Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 and 3, and Shocking Dark. There was also Angelo Ragusa, who played Leech. He's had a few minor roles in Italian exploitation productions, like Zombie Holocaust, Hitchhike, Contamination, 2019 After the Fall of New York, and Atlantis Interceptors. He was, however, mainly a stuntman by trade, working on stuff like Gangs of New York, Passion of the Christ, Daylight, Quantum of Solace, Angels and Demons, Twilight New Moon, and the new Bond film Spectre. The female leader of the Iron Men was played by black bombshell Carla Brait, whom we've spotted before in Case of the Bloody Iris and Torso. She reprised this role in the sequel Escape from the Bronx. And finally, director Enzo G. Castellari himself appeared as the vice president. The director Enzo G. Castellari was almost destined to be in the film business, being the son of Marino Girolami, who directed stuff like Violent City and Zombie Holocaust. Family is rather the operative word too, as his cousin was Massimo Vanni, who played the role of Blade in this movie, as well as his daughter Stefano Girolami Goodwin playing the role of Anne. He's directed some corkers as well, such as A Few Dollars for Django, One Dollar Too Many, The Big Racket, Inglorious Bastards, The House by the Edge of the Lake, The Last Shark, the sequel to this film, Escape from the Bronx, and similar film, Warriors of the Wasteland. And he still works to this day, actually, currently working on an Italian Western film called The Fourth Horseman, with an ensemble cast of cult actors like Carolyn Monroe, Franco Nero, Michael Berryman, Fabio Testi, Kane Hodder, Bill Mosley, Ruggiero Diodato, Mick Garris, and even Joe Dante. Castellari was notably the first choice to direct Zombie Flesh Eaters, but he dropped out from the project after he considered the budget too low, and he was uncomfortable with the horror genre anyway. His declining arguably paved the way for Lucio Fulci to helm the project and led to a very successful film indeed. The film was written by Castellari, as well as duo from last week's show Elisa Briganti and Dardano Sacchetti, though some of the English dialogue was collaborated on with actor Antoni Pagan, whom we've spotted before in Fulci's New York Ripper. He also briefly popped up in Bronx Warriors as a biker and in the sequel too as a reporter character. The music was done by Walter Rizzati, who worked on Fulci's House by the Cemetery, one of the nasties, as well as Thunder 2 from 1987, which also starred Mark Gregory. The cinematography was done by Sergio Salvati, whom we've noticed before when we covered City of the Living Dead and Contraband. He was most often a collaborator with Lucio Fulci, but he worked with others too on stuff like Thunder, Ghoulies 2, and even Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Editing on Bronx Warriors was completed by Gianfranco Amicucci, who was Castellari's preferred editor of choice, working on The Big Racket, Kioma, Inglorious Bastards, House by the Edge of the Lake, The Shark Hunter, and even Hotel Paradise and Amazonia, both of which that we've seen before. The costumes and set design was done by Massimo Lentini, who worked on most of Lucio Fulci's filmography, 
Barva's Shock from 1977, and Escape from the Bronx. Assistant director Giuseppe Giglietti was encountered briefly when we watched Amazonia as he worked in the same capacity on that film. But another assistant director was Stefania Girolami Goodwin, who played the role of Anne, as we mentioned before. Her father entrusted her with both duties, as she was eager to learn everything that she could on the set. Lastly, there was the film's special effects, which were done by a team of three. Pasquino Banassati, Walter Battistelli and Pasquale Serrajo. But sadly, the trio didn't do anything else in the film world. The movie was quite successful upon its initial release in 1982 in Italy, piggybacking on the success of similar films that it was inspired by, like Escape from New York, Mad Max 2 and The Warriors. It was equally successful in the US, where it lost a few expository sequences, like some of that meeting at the East River, the subsequent funeral scene and the moment where Anne and Trash talk on the beach. It was released in 1983 in UK cinemas, but it suffered 12 seconds of cuts to remove the throat slashing via motorcycle blade and all the shots of weaponry during the opening credits. The BBFC had a particular problem with this latter image, which they'd often categorise as weapon glamorisation and glorification of criminal activity. While it was rarer in the days before the Video Recordings Act, the BBFC had a major issue with this after the Video Nasty scare was over, censoring most instances of nunchakers, shuriken stars, ninja blades, butterfly and hunting knives, and in some cases even the words themselves, humorously rebranding the animated Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. The same cut version ended up on pre-cert VHS from Entertainment in Video, which are already under the microscope by the authorities for their releases of Rosemary's Killer and Parasite. Bronx Warriors still had a few violent sequences outside of these opening scenes, so it's possible that the film was still contentious to some degree, but there's no official confirmation that the film was seized in any sort of district. In the aftermath of the Video Recordings Act, the Entertainment in Video release was resubmitted to the BBFC, and it passed at Certificate 18 in 1986. The 12 seconds of cuts persisted even on a 1993 VHS release from Scimitar Entertainment. But the censorship was finally waived when Vipco released the film on DVD in 2003. In 2009, Shameless Films released an uncut version with better picture quality, and the film was then downgraded to a 15 certificate due to the lesser impact of the violence by contemporary standards. So, that was Bronx Warriors from Enzo G. Castellari. We'll soldier right on to our next glorious action film, 2019 After the Fall of New York.
20 years after a nuclear fallout, Earth is in a desolate state of destruction where fertility has been reduced to nil. In the ruins of New York, a vicious military group known as the Yoraks are exterminating New York's irradiated natives and seizing healthy ones in a desperate bid to solve their fertility problem. Using volunteering mercenaries, they perpetrate a cleansing on one district of New York, leaving no survivors. At the same time, a competitive race ensues between heavily armoured and weaponised vehicles in Nevada, with driver Parseval seemingly dying when his opponents run him off a cliff edge. Surprising them, Parseval suddenly appears behind his opponents and beats them up, tricking one into falling off the cliff and kicking another one into a car spike, killing him. Collecting his winnings from a bizarre clown cyborg, Parseval takes his newly won woman prize and drives off, coming across a small group of irradiated survivors who are in their death throes. He takes mercy on them and shoots them dead with a laser pistol, gifting his woman slave with his prize winnings, allowing her to take possession of the survivors' items and taking her freedom as well. As she leaves, Parseval is kidnapped by two strange figures wearing white uniforms and taken via aircraft to a remote outpost in Alaska, where he meets the president of the Pan-European Confederacy, who was Parseval's previous employer. The president explains that he's chosen Parseval to locate a woman in New York, suspected of retaining her fertility, as part of a grand plan to evacuate the Earth and forge a new society on the nearest star, using the ovum within this woman. Parseval has doubts, but he's given no choice by the president, who threatens death if he refuses, and subsequently promises him a place on the spaceship to the New World. Tagging him up with Bronx, a man whose family was massacred by the Eurax, and Ratchet, an up-and-coming Confederate fighter, they're sent on their way to drive across the desert. Finally reaching the outskirts of New York, the Asker drifted for directions and they decide to infiltrate the city via underground tunnels. After wading through filthy water, they finally surface in an abandoned train yard, only to be attacked by a gang of hunters. Managing to fight them off, they reach the streets and witness the arrival of a group of Uraks on horseback, forced to hide inside a manhole. When they try to leave, some irradiated natives force them underground, where they encounter another gang of locals hunting rats inside the sewers, where one of them succumbs to rat bites before one of them spots a little boy. Giving chase, the locals discover it is in fact a dwarf called Shorty, and they attempt to kill him, forcing Parseval to intervene and beat several of the locals up to save him. They're all unfortunately captured, with the exception of Ratchet, when the rat-eater king corners Parseval, but then they subsequently notice one of the locals, a blonde woman named Giara, who seems to be uncontaminated. Suddenly, the area is overrun by Eurax, who murder the rat-eater king with a hatchet, before noticing the prisoners who are noticeably uninfected. Taking all of them captive, both Bronx and Parseval are transported to Eurax headquarters, where Bronx is interrogated by the Eurax commander. After decrying the Eurax for their wanton destruction of the city, Bronx gouges the commander's eyes out, whilst Parseval is tied to a torture bed and questioned by a female officer, Anya, who instead of using violence, seduces him instead for the information that she needs. After pointing out that Giara is the last fertile woman, Parseval is forced to watch Bronx be interrogated and tortured by a computer. When it determines that he's lying and is about to execute him, Parseval interferes and kills the guards. Rescuing Bronx, Parseval then locates Giara and learns that her sterility test means that she isn't the woman he's looking for, 
and after freeing her from the guards, the trio makes their escape, as one of the Yorak surgeons repairs the eyes of the commander, revealing him to be a cyborg. Anya sends soldiers to recover the escapees, when Bronx sacrifices himself so that Parsifal and Giara can make it away. As they exit into the outside yards, the pair are cornered by several Yorak soldiers, until they're rescued by Ratchet and Shorty, who had evaded capture earlier. Managing to create enough of a ruckus to escape back into the sewers, Ratchet brings the pair to Shorty's home underneath the United Nations building. The Yoraks, however, close in by flooding the area with intense sounds, rendering everyone dead except for the four who plug their ears with wax blobs, and they manage to escape into the streets once more. Finding a woman cradling a baby in a cot, the trio was soon shocked when it's revealed to be a mere doll, just as a net falls on top of them and they're attacked by a ravenous, hairy-faced mutant. Due to the commotion, the Yoraks close in on them and shoot the mutant dead, but suddenly a whole gang of the mutants, led by a man called Big Ape, kills the entire lot of them. After getting answers about what Parsifal's party are looking for, they offer them shelter, but Giara is soon grabbed by one of them and fought over by Parsifal for her affections. He beats the creep up easily and impresses Giara, where she then professes her love for him. It's rather short-lived when Big Ape attacks him again after a misunderstanding, but Shorty offers to bring Big Ape along with them to find the woman, and the group of five then head on their way. Shorty leads them back into his home, where they find Shorty's people dead from the earlier attack and being eaten by rats, and they pass through the caves to a hidden vault, where he addresses a professor who refuses to answer. When there is no response, Big Ape blows up the vault door with dynamite, and the group enter to find an old man deceased in his chair. Investigating further, they find a woman inside a glass chamber behind several sheets. Shorty explains that she's the professor's daughter, Melissa, who was kept in hibernation by the professor for the purpose of repopulating the Earth. They also locate a car and plan their escape, needing to find some lead to armour the vehicle against a laser turret further along their escape route. Shorty, Parsifal and Ratchet head for a nearby junkyard, whilst Jara and Big Ape look after Melissa from any Yorak intruders. Big Ape, however, cannot contain his lust for Melissa and knocks out Jara to gain access to the hibernating girl. Finding the place crawling with Yoraks, Shorty distracts the soldiers so that the other two can get the scrap metal, but after he's caught, Shorty chooses to kill himself rather than be tortured into giving his friends up. When they return with the metal, the remaining four people bolster the car and break through several barricades on their escape through the tunnel, evading various traps and attacks from the Yorak soldiers. While they sustain heavy damage and manage to reach the desert on the outskirts of the city, Big Ape is killed by a fusillade of lasers during the kerfuffle. Back at Yurak headquarters, Anya kills her commander and his nurse when he rebukes her for the failure of trying to catch the escapees, and takes matters into her own hands. On the car journey, Giara reveals that Big Ape had impregnated Melissa after knocking her out, but Parsifal infers that this was his plan all along, to test her fertility. After receiving a report that the pan-European confederacy have bombed Yurak HQ, Parsifal also reveals that he's aware that Ratchet is a cyborg, causing him to be attacked by the man. In the struggle, Ratchet stabs Jara in the abdomen and is about to kill Parsifal when he manages to deactivate him by smashing a rock into his head. Jara declares her love once more as she dies in Parsifal's arms, before he heads back out to Alaska. Reaching the president, Parsifal chastises him for Ratchet's inclusion on the mission, 
but is told in return that he was never gifted with a place on the spaceship. The President is instead willingly giving up his spot for him, citing his own old age and mortality. Preparations to leave begin immediately, with Parsifal tasked with informing Melissa of their current situation when she wakes up. As the ship takes off to futures unknown, Melissa awakens. We have ways of making you talk. But before resorting to them, I thought you might like the opportunity to volunteer the information I want. A little spontaneous collaboration never hurt anyone. And life is more precious today than ever before, as you well know. No. I see that certain cultures never die. Are you referring to the Picasso painting? Or to the genocide it depicts? Is there a difference? Beauty and ugliness. Good and evil. It might make sense if future generations learned from all the horrors we've done to one another. We have fused Asia and Europe and Africa into a single race, a world civilization. I believe that God will give us, the Urax, his chosen people, the opportunity and ability to create new humans again. After he allowed you to almost wipe them out. That makes sense. It's inevitable that an overdeveloped society eventually will come to the point of its own destruction. Our robots and your cyborgs were a good example of that. Before being destroyed, my nation eliminated the cyborgs. We must use every means possible to save the human race. Or perhaps you hate it so strongly, you'd rather see it die out completely. Yeah. From what I've seen in the past 20 years, mankind should be banished from the universe. Even though you belong to a highly developed society, I can see that you're sensitive and knowledgeable. I taught pre-industrial revolution history here, in this city, before your bomb has destroyed it. I see. Well, Professor, may I know your name? My name no longer exists, any more than my nation. I shall now get to the point of this little discussion. We have reason to believe that your nation is reorganizing. We want you to tell us where and how and what brought you to New York. I'll tell you why I came to New York. To dig out the eyes of a worm like you. Just when you thought Sergio Martino was only a master of giallo and adventure movies, 2019 after the fall of New York, and I'll refer to it only as 2019 from now on for ease, is a post-apocalyptic science fiction film that was released in 1983. Like Bronx Warriors before it, Martino's futuristic shoot-em-up relied heavily on the popularity of the genre as a result of similar successful cult films, like Mad Max, Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, and Escape from New York. But unlike Bronx Warriors, which eschewed any technological themes or science fiction elements, 2019 liberally borrows a whole surgical tray of sci-fi tropes, 
such as pockets of irradiation, global destruction by nuclear powers, gaggles of mutants, daredevil competitive sports, and dark anti-heroes entrusted with the world's future. Compared to the melee and trash-talking of the previous example, we get much more futuristic laser pistol action with gunfights, mutants and car chases, all of which were missing for the most part in Bronx Warriors. Anyway, let's start on the film itself. It began filming in 1983, with the majority of the film's scenes filmed in several dilapidated film studios in Italy, namely De Paulis Studios and Tibertina Studios, both of which were in rather damaged states of repair. Martino found this to be exactly what he needed, however, with only a few moments shot on location. Notably, the junkyard sequence and the train graveyard scenes were filmed on location in New York, while the Death Race 2000-style car chase was filmed in several locations in Arizona. Lastly, the moments filmed in Shorty's Caves and Melissa's final resting place were filmed in genuine cave systems located in West Sardinia. Very similarly to Bronx Warriors, however, the creativity in this film is pretty special, really, as the scope of the story is pretty damn vast. The film starts in New York, has a brief moment in Nevada, then goes to Alaska, and then back to New York for the majority of it, with a brief mention of space at the film's climax. The opening montage is clearly a miniature, and so is the Alaska set, both of them augmented with puppeteered spaceships. But by heck, you have to admire the scope and imagination of the whole thing. It's so endearing just to see the effort, and while the effects are a little bit shaky, they still look quite magical when you see them in action. They really do have a charm all of their own league. We're still in low-budget world here, of course, though, so while the effects in the film are rather cheap, they're far from nasty, and they have actually managed to be endearing for the entirety of the film. Similar to Enzo G. Castellari's film, though, Martino wears his inspirations on his sleeve for all to see, blending a real mix of influences together. Protagonist Parsifal is very visually similar to Kurt Russell's Snake Plissken from John Carpenter's 1981 classic Escape from New York, while Ratchet's character is partially inspired by the replicants of Blade Runner. The phallic silver microwave guns used by the Pan-European Confederacy look incredibly similar to the one from Barbarella that Jane Fonda uses, whilst the glowing cross mines are reused from 1982's Texas Gladiators from Joe D'Amato. The mutants, led by Big Ape, are heavily inspired, if not completely ripped, from the 1968 movie Planet of the Apes, with some of the same makeup effects and even face masks being used. Some of the music score as well is reused from 1983's Yaw, Hunter from the Future, and even the scene in the beginning of extreme drag racing is pretty much nicked from the Mad Max films. Some of the more, shall we say, creative things though also pop up in the film that are as wacky as they are humorous to see. In the movie's opening, for example, Parsifal wins a deadly race by having to kill his opponents, who clearly try to have him killed. His prize is a willing sex slave and some tin lids that are spray-painted gold, which, according to him, are licenses to kill. Yeah, really? So even a sliver of James Bond slips into this movie. But unlike the misogynistic geriatric that Bond is, Parsifal has morals and immediately sets his sex slave free, Aladdin-style, by killing a group of dying irradiated wastelanders and gifting her with the licenses, meaning that she can have their provisions and earn her own freedom. Rewinding briefly for a moment, though, it also seems that the death-defying race is ran by the Mad Hatter and a cyborg clown. 
Certainly a bizarre choice, even in this post-apocalyptic setting, and the film just keeps coming up with these surprises. The group in the sewers seem to hunt rats, and when one of them is overcome by a small cluster of the creatures and killed, in predictable fashion, it turns out that the offending rodent is actually a guinea pig. The moment where Shorty's people are attacked by the high-pitched whines is also pretty hilarious as Parsifal and his group survive by grabbing a splodge of goop from the nearby fireplace and sharing it equally as earwax. From the small amount that was on the rocks, it's damn near biblical how far that little knot stretched. Whilst another silly moment occurs in the ending, when the President reveals that he cannot journey to space because of the G-force. But when Parsifal takes his place... He and the other passengers aren't even strapped in and don't react an iota as the ship takes off. So where's this punishing gravity that was supposed to be so bad? What really shines in this film, though, is the varied cast of weird and wonderful characters. The plot is nothing too taxing to figure out, although the ethics of relying on a singular woman to repopulate the Earth would be a little... problematic. Then again, this film can't be taken seriously in any context, especially with a hero like Parsifal, who's got that roguish charm, rugged good looks, and good-natured rascal quality that you'd expect to see in a protagonist of this type. He's also forced into his circumstances a little, and a bit like Mad Max, seemingly seems to have just wandered the wastelands before then with no real objective. He takes on his mission with relish, though, altruistically saving Giara from her miserable existence in the rat-eater pack by falsely claiming that she's the fertile woman that he's looking for. He also saves Shorty from the pack, unable to let an innocent man die, and he even reasons with Big Ape despite the fact that he's attacked several times by the mutants and Big Ape himself. He also rescues Bronx from imminent death and Giara from her capture by the Yorax, and he's also intelligent enough to notice Ratchet's peculiarities to deduce that he's a cyborg way before he attacks him. So while he has the look of a brooding protagonist with a dark past, the fact is that Parsifal is just too altruistic to effectively be that dark character that he appears. Giara is the blonde bombshell Dotaragonist who kind of sticks out a little even in her clan of rat hunters. But unfortunately, like Anne in the previous film, she's given little to do except to be lusted after by the majority of the male cast. She's sort of given away as some sort of prize at one point after eating the Feast of Rats, and it looks like she's going to be raped until the Eurax raid the camp, only to then get captured. Parsifal is taken with her as well, leading him to rescue her through the deception of Anya by making out that she's the fertile woman. I was actually surprised, though, that she wasn't, if I'm honest, as Giara is a major part of the film's posters, which suggested to me that she was the woman in question. But unfortunately, she's not got that much significance, other than being the damsel in distress from several rapacious mutants before she's ultimately killed by Ratchet. Like Anne's death from the previous film, her death really doesn't have that much impact, despite lots of effort to the contrary. It really tries hard to be sentimental, and quite tragic but it falls a bit flat really but at the same time it's quite humorous that they wring so much soppiness from it bronx is parsifal's loyal companion who has a dual bladed claw in place of a hand while he has his own axe to grind having lost his parents in the urax attacks he's nonetheless willing to put his life on the line gouging the eyes out of the urax commander and sacrificing himself to ensure that giara and parsifal escape Ratchet is a little bit more of an enigma, having some nebulous origin of being one of the best upcoming fighters of the Confederacy. He can perform some impressive stunts, he can certainly hold his own in a fight, but he also happens to be a cyborg. 
While he does kill Giara, his character is a bit of a non-sequitur, as it really doesn't make much sense that the President would put a cyborg on the mission, even if he was just going to kill Parsifal anyway. Shorty is quite a novel addition to the cast, and after being saved by Parsifal, he becomes quite a loyal ally to him, a bit like Short Round to Indiana Jones. He kills himself rather than submit to Yurak questioning, so it does carry through this constant idea of people who are willing to die for Parsifal, and by extension, the mission to repopulate the Earth. Big Ape is visually one of the most interesting, played by the hunky George Eastman, who wears his best fake fur and simian face makeup to portray the leader of these monkey-like mutants. In his pastel orange shirt, Arabian-looking tallwar, and belt jewellery, he looks like he's just been plucked from a sword and sandal movie, and he features quite prominently on one of the film's posters. He's neither here nor there, though, with his allegiance, as he simultaneously has his own intentions on his mind, by impregnating Melissa against the wishes of the others, and attacking Parsifal and the others at random when he feels like it. It's all a bit arbitrary anyway when he's fried to a crisp by the Yorak's laser weapon on their daring escape from the city. The President is more of a curmudgeonly figure than a threatening one, despite the fact that he's supposed to have threatened Parsifal into doing his bidding. He's just too benevolent looking to be an antagonist, so Purdom's casting here is a little bit off. Still, he does get more into character as the film goes on, as he reveals that his old age prevents him from journeying into the future. While the nameless Yurak commander is a bit paltry in terms of character development, simply being a cyborg who spends most of his time in surgery, Anya is a much more interesting antagonist, as she's content to be both violent and sexualised in her quest to find the last fertile female. She seduces Parsifal into talking to her, and instantly changes her tactics when her charges escape custody, allowing her soldiers to use maximum effort to get the prisoners back. They're a bit like stormtroopers, however, in their aiming skills, so our main protagonists easily escape their clutches. When her hand is pushed, however, she gets nasty and she kills her commander and his nurse, so she's certainly feisty... But in one of the most laughter-inducing moments, however, the next sequence after her little rebellion reveals that the HQ of the Eurax was bombed, basically killing her off-screen. So she did all that effort for nothing, really. Outside of the film's characters, there's also some visual flourishes that the film has, like the presence of Guernica by Pablo Picasso. This real-life painting depicts the Spanish city which was bombed by Nazi Germany in combination with Italian warplanes at the behest of Spanish nationalists. Picasso was personally affected by the event, in which most of the victims were innocent women and children, so the painting accurately reflects a horrifying chaos where women and children fall between flames, violence and pain, all watched over by the horse and bull, which are national icons of Spain. It's quite ironic that this film has this painting featured, since the Italians, historically, were at least involved in the tragedy, but the ensuing irony is probably why it was chosen. I mean, the Yorax are using this as their symbol, despite the fact that they were responsible for the destruction of New York. This irony was actually not lost to Picasso either, who was living in Nazi-occupied Paris during World War II, when one German officer allegedly said to him upon seeing a photo of the painting, Did you do that? And Picasso simply responded, No, you did. The violence in the film is also quite numerous and exciting to witness. Like we get frequent stabbings, we get shootings all the time, people get impaled on spikes. 
big ape disembowels someone with a saber. You get some decapitations. The leader of the Rat Eaters gets a brutal axe in the face. And this is all outside of the visual laser effect that the film sporadically shoots out. You get various makeup effects of mutated people, survivors who've drank irradiated water, and various other visual novelties. As far as exploitation films go, this one's a bit of a gem, really, and there's so much to like about it. Sure, it's silly and cheap in areas, but Martino really tried hard, and for the most part, the film is quite successful in generating both laughs and goodwill towards its special effects and action sequences. So, definitely pick this one up if you can. Main Guy Parsifal was played by Michael Sipkoff, whom we've encountered before when we covered Massacre in Dinosaur Valley back in the first couple of episodes we did Once Upon a Time. This was one of the films in his three-piece contract that also included Massacre in Dinosaur Valley and Blast Fighter, but he also cropped up in 1984's Devilfish. Giara was played by Valentin Monnier, who appeared as opposite Sipkoff in Lamberto Barber's Devilfish. Italian-Greek actress Anna Kanakis, who played Anya, had previously appeared in the similar Warriors of the Wasteland from Enzo G. Castellari, whilst Romano Popo, who played Ratchet, had been in several Italian genre films as well, like The Big Racket, The Great Alligator, Contraband, The Last Shark, and subsequently to this film, Escape from the Bronx, Ghoulies 2, Zombie Flesh Eaters 3, and Robo War. British actor Edmund Purdom, whom we've spotted before in Pieces and Don't Open Until Christmas, plays the role of the president of the Pan-European Confederacy, whilst Hal Yamana Uchi played the Rat Eater King, whom we also spotted previously when we covered Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals and the House of Lost Souls. The Yurak officer who was killed by Big Ape was played by Russian actor Jacques Stani, who had quite a vast experience of cult movies under his belt. After starring in early Italian knockoffs like Castle of the Living Dead and for a few extra dollars, he began to appear in Jallo pictures like Orgasmo, Cat of Nine Tails, Four of Flies on Grey Velvet, and The Scorpion with Two Tails. But he also appeared in Violence in a Women's Prison, which we've covered before, and the very similar Women's Prison Massacre. The peculiar Mad Hatter-looking race announcer at the beginning was played by Franco Mazzieri, who the eagle-eyed amongst you may recognise as Francois from Island of Mutations. George Eastman, whom we've just mentioned in the previous film, played the big ape and is one of the most recognisable characters in the film, whilst Omero Capanna played one of the masked Yorick guardsmen. Capanna was mainly a stuntman who worked on stuff like Year of the Gun, Daylight, Last Temptation of Christ, and the later film Passion of the Christ. He was also a very eager character actor, appearing in mostly non-speaking roles in hundreds of productions, some of which include Andrea Bianchi's Cry of a Prostitute, Deep Red, Violent City, The Big Racket, The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, Star Crash, Caligula, Zombie Flesh Eaters, Hell Prison, Contraband, City of the Living Dead, Violence in a Woman's Prison, Iron Master, Women's Prison Massacre, and finally Hands of Steel. Ottaviano Delacqua, whom we've seen in Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 and Rat's Night of Terror, has a minor role here as a Yurak guard, as does Angelo Ragusa, whom we spoke about on Bronx Warriors just before. Another familiar face on Nasty Pasty is that of James Sampson, who played the vagrant on the outskirts of New York. He's been in City of the Living Dead, Stage Fright, Shocking Dark, and Zombie Flesh Eaters 3 that we've covered before. And lastly, there was Goffredo Unger, 
whom we've encountered briefly once before on the ultra-boring Panic. In this film, he played one of the Yoraks in the junkyard who confronts Shorty, but he's been both a stuntman, assistant director, and actor in several productions, including Cannibal Apocalypse, Absurd, Exterminators of the Year 3000, Devilfish, and Demons. Director Sergio Martino has already been covered a few times on this show, namely when we've covered Hands of Steel, Torso, and Island of Mutations, so we won't delve too deeply into his history. He also wrote the film with his usual writer, Ernesto Gastaldi, whom we've mentioned on the films Case of the Bloody Iris, Torso, Almost Human, Hands of Steel, and The Cynic, the Rat, and the Fist. The pair were also assisted by Gabriel Rossini, who worked on Umberto Lenzi's Iron Master. The producer, Luciano Martino, is also a frequent face, having been spoken about on Case of the Bloody Iris, Almost Human, The Cynic, the Rat and the Fist, Island of Mutations, City of the Living Dead, and Hands of Steel. His fellow producer was Max Peckus, a French director who'd helped finance a bunch of Italian films like this one and Devilfish. The music in the film was done by the ever-reliable Oliver Onions, a.k.a. Guido and Fabrizio De Angelis, who've done many notable Italian soundtracks for films like A Blade in the Dark, Alien Terror, Killer Fish, Mountain of the Cannibal God, and The Big Racket. The cinematographer was Giancarlo Ferrando, again another familiar face, as we've seen his imagery in Torso, Island of Mutations, Hands of Steel, House of Lost Souls, and House of Witchcraft. And the same goes for Eugenio Albisso, who's been in most of Sergio Martino's filmography, as well as Body Count and Against Nature. The set design was done by Massimo Antonello Galeng, who's worked on some of the most recognisable cult Italian films that have striking imagery in them. These include Mountain of the Cannibal God, Island of Mutations, Cannibal Holocaust, Eaten Alive... Contamination, City of the Living Dead, House on the Edge of the Park, The Scorpion with Two Tails, Ark of the Sun God, Devilfish, Hands of Steel, The Church, and Lamberto Barva's Delirium, as well as his four Bravido Giallo series films. The special effects were done by a duo, which included Eduardo Margariti, who's the son of director Antonio Margariti. He's worked on adventure-style films like Hunters of the Golden Cobra and Ark of the Sun God, and he even assisted his father directing the video nasty The Last Hunter. He was assisted on special effects by Paolo Ricci, whom we've met before on Hands of Steel and Island of Mutations. But he also did some rather striking work on the video nasties, namely Mountain of the Cannibal God and Cannibal, or aka Last Cannibal World. Martino was assisted in his direction by his trusted aide Massimo Manassi, whom he worked with on a chunk of his filmography, like The Great Alligator, Island of Mutations, and The Scorpion with Two Tails. And lastly, there was Alain Sens Casanave, who worked on Cathy's Curse, Iron Master, and the aforementioned Scorpion with Two Tails. The film had a very successful run in both Italy and Europe upon its release in 1983, earning just over a million dollars in equivalent US currencies. It was also quite successful in the US due to the popularity of the post-apocalypse subgenre, but it seems that the film skipped the UK cinemas entirely. Thankfully, a VTC VHS release popped up in April of 1984, right in the epicentre of the video nasty epidemic. VTC were a rather prominent offender of the DPP's nasties list, releasing Delirium, Possession, Nightmare City, Revenge of the Bogeyman, 
Superstition, The Witch Who Came From The Sea, and Zombie Holocaust, all of which were nasties. While the film was released uncut by them, it didn't really seem to attract any attention really, and after the Video Recordings Act was passed, the film was resubmitted to the BBFC in 1987 for another VHS release. It was passed after seven seconds of cuts were applied, to remove several impalements, like the driver in the beginning of the film, and also the brutal face-hacking with the axe. It remained in this form for 30 years, until 2017, when the marvellous 88 films released a remastered version of the film on DVD and Blu-ray, which is packed with all sorts of unmissable goodies. And that's the show for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks as ever for joining me on my weekly ramble about these sorts of films. I do hope you've enjoyed this one. If you'd like to discuss horror films on Twitter or Facebook, I'm always available and I love talking about this era in film, so do hit me up. The bonus episode on Black Belly of the Tarantula will be out soon, I promise, and so is the competition. I haven't forgotten about either of them. So please expect some more news about them coming up. But for now, our next episode coming out next weekend is again on post-apocalyptic action films. But specifically, two examples that were directed by Joe D'Amato, famous for his sex horror mashups and generally adult-oriented entertainment. Next Saturday, you can look forward to 2020 Texas Gladiators and Endgame Bronx's Final Fight. But for now, stay safe, everyone, and once more... Thanks ever so much for tuning in. Ta-ta! Ta-ta!